0: My name is Paul Pokras, I'm the director of the Liver Disease Center at Scripps Clinic in La Jolla, California, right up the the road from here. I'm also the director of the Scripps Translational Science Institute in Clinical Research. So I have a fair amount of experience with hepatitis C. I'm going to talk to you today about optimizing hepatitis C management within a system of care using uh, PCMH model to improve screening, treatment, and outcomes. So these are my faculty disclosures to begin with. These are learning objectives, simple, describe the growing epidemic of hepatitis C and what's changed over the last 25 years, how to implement appropriate HCV screening, and then to outline what we've done with therapy now. So first, let's describe the growing HCV epidemic in terms of shifting demographics under diagnosis and under treatment. So if you look worldwide, there are 70 million people infected. Um, In the United States, the incidence is less, it's about 1%. But there are certain populations, like the baby boom population, where the prevalence is higher. The prevalence is 1.8 to 3.4% in the baby boom population because they were infected many years ago and they're still out there. So these are the, the uh, population born between 1945 and 65. But you'll notice there are some parts, like if you look at North Africa, the red area there is Egypt. There's a very high incidence and prevalence of hepatitis C in Egypt because of accidental infection in, in the 1950s and 60s of a large portion of the population. So up to 20, 25% of the population in Egypt is HCV positive. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, et cetera, you can see those um, Central European countries also have a very high prevalence. If you look at the countries with the that account for 80% of the infections, they are listed there, China, Pakistan, India, Egypt, Russia, U.S., Nigeria. So the U.S. is in the, that top por- uh, portion. Now, there are different genotypes of the virus. Just to remind you, if this is a review, I apologize, but a genotype means there's at least a 30% difference in the nucleotide level and a 25 to 30% difference in the amino acid level which represents long-standing diversity. This infection's been around for many, many centuries and so it's evolved in different parts of the world and therefore we have different types of virus that have evolved. The virus itself replicates very rapidly. Half-life of the virus is 45 minutes. The typical body uh, infection is 10 to the 12th or 10 to the 13th virus. So um, that results in lots of very rapid viral replication and opportunity for lots of mistakes. The virus doesn't have a proofreading mechanism so it makes mistakes. One in 10,000 viruses in mutation so there's lots of genetic diversity and rapid dynamic changes the virus. So if you look at an infected patient that has a normal viral load uh, of a million Um, and they have 10th to the 12th virus on board. Most of that is wild type, but a small percentage are lots of small mutations. The most common genotype in the United States is genotype 1, and you can see from this older slide, half had high viral load, that's HVL, and about a quarter have low viral load. The other genotypes are primarily genotype 2, 3, and four, five, and six represent a very small portion of the U.S. population. Now we haven't quite reached the peak of cirrhosis in the United States due to hepatitis C. Um, We're probably about there. The advent of direct acting antivirals, I think, has stopped the progression of disease, but keep in mind my generation born between 45 and 65, has had the infection now for 40 years. So most of the patients already have evolved in either developed cirrhosis, many have died from liver disease or cirrhosis. How many of you know somebody or have had a patient that's died from hepatitis C-related liver disease or liver cancer? Yeah, it's it's not unusual at all. If you practice in a VA hospital, everybody would have raised their hand. So, um, but if you look at the epidemiology of the infection it's changed. So in 2007 you can see it was all baby boomers and the peak age was around 55. Now it's around 65 in the baby boom population but you have a second group here. Uh, this second peak uh, it's around age 25. And these are the PWIDS um, that are acquiring hepatitis C infection. So this has occurred in an unequal fashion throughout the United States. You can see the red states there have been over a 200% increase in the number of young white adults that inject drugs that have developed hepatitis C. Um, and the white states, we don't have data for, but you can see California is in this uh, high-risk uh, population. Lots of states in the Midwest and the South, etc. This has also led to to mother-to-child transmission. So when you look at reproductive age women and their children, the incidence of hepatitis C is now increasing, not decreasing. And that's because of these PWIDs that are getting hepatitis C infection. Um, Now, And and by the way, this has had a tremendous impact on liver transplant centers. I work at a liver transplant center, our organ transplant centers, because we're getting large numbers of donors that are young IV drug users that OD, that have not died, that are brain dead, and that donate their organs, and um, many of them are HCV-infected so we're now using we don't want to throw away those organs because they're precious they need to be used so we're using those for liver and kidney transplantation even into patients that are not hcv positive to begin with because we can now readily treat the uh, organ uh, so if somebody gets an HCV positive organ and an HCV negative recipient, we can readily treat them with eight weeks of the antiviral therapy and prevent the hepatitis C infection in the recipient. So how well are we doing in practice? Um, well, to, to be honest, we really suck at this. We, we don't diagnose patients very well. We've only diagnosed about half the uh, population that's infected. And if you look at those that then get diagnosed, their access to outpatient care is sometimes limited. And the number that have actually been treated and cured is relatively small. Now this slide has is, is got data all the way up to the end of 2014 and to be fair, since 2000, the beginning of 15, we've cured another 300 to 350,000 patients. So we've probably cured 600,000 or more patients with hepatitis C in the United States now, but there are still lots of patients that have not been treated and cured, and there are lots of patients that haven't been diagnosed. So why is this? Let's look at the hepatitis C screening practices. Uh, Well, this slide is very difficult to read, but um, I'll just tell you, this comes straight from the AASLD guideline document. That document uh, is online. It gets updated every three months. It's 250 pages long, but you just go to the, it will list for you what you want to know. So if you want to say who gets screened for hepatitis C, it'll tell you simply and it'll give you the rating uh, category. So category 1B, very high rating, is one time HCV testing for anybody born between 45 and 65. That's the baby boom population. And then the other populations that are at risk, these are IV drug users. Intranasal illicit drug use because of blood-to-blood transmission. Uh, so if somebody uses an intranasal drug, they bleed and can share that blood with someone else who's doing the same thing. Uh, long-term dialysis patients. So these patients are exposed to lots of needles in healthcare, care, and they are at risk for hepatitis C. Uh, patients with uh, uh, exposures to lots of... Um, needle using or one way or another, health care providers in the case of emergency or uh, accidental ne- needle sticks, that's done routinely, uh, children born to HCV-infected patients, prior recipients of uh, infusion products before we had good screening, that was 1992 and persons who are incarcer- incarcerated. So if you look at population incarcerated in the United States, how many people touch the penal system in the United States per year? Come on, you guys know the. Come on, half of you guys are on probation. Give me the answer to this <laughs> question. You know the answer to this. Ten million. So um, that's a lot of folks. Four million are in prison, but... So the, the sad truth is, if you look at that population, the, the uh, percentage that have Hepatitis C when they go into or leave prison is very, very high. Highest among females, by the way, probably because of IV drug use. Um, and the other, um, the other things to consider, HIV inf- infection, sexually active patients that have sexually transmitted diseases uh... and unexplained chronic elevations of ALT solid organ donors also get tested for hepatitis C how do you do the testing It's pretty simple hcb antibody testing is cheap now it um, if it's done um, and you are positive it should default automatically to an hcb rna that's equivalent to a western blot for hiv and that confirms the infection patients that um, have liver disease also that may have had a recent infection should be tested for HCVRNA directly. So that's done in, in some cases also in immunocompromised patients where rarely they won't develop antibody. Um, now, people that get reinfected with hepatitis C have to be tested for hepatitis C RNA, not antibody. So once you're infected with hepatitis C, you have antibody for life. Antibody is not protected. <clears throat> so about 25% of patients that get infected spontaneously clear the infection, and, um, but they still have a positive antibody. So when you test that patient, they'll have a positive antibody, a negative HCV RNA, and normal liver tests. They do not have active hepatitis C. They don't have to be treated. If their RNA is positive, it should be quantitated and that's typically how it's done they should have a genotype although most therapies now are pan genotypic so it doesn't matter and um, you can tell people that they don't have an active infection if they're rna negative so this is sort of what the the algorithm looks like uh, antibody non-reactive you don't have hep c you're done if you're reactive and your hcv rna is not detected you don't have active infection you're done but if you 've got positive RNA, uh, then you have to quantitate it and refer the patient for therapy for a link to care. So how well have we been doing with screening? So screening has been active. This program was our initiative was started by the CDC in two thousand and twelve um, and it was simple. This advertising was all over the United States, and you may have seen it a picture of Woodstock and a you know martin luther king and the astronauts all it's supposed to connect with the baby boom population and say okay okay dude you know were you were you getting high during all this time and when you use using iv drugs or multiple sexual partners or whatever and do you have hep c and people are supposed to think stop and go gee i may maybe i should get tested so that was a good idea they've had that out there six years the recommendation was simple Get tested, and if you're identified that you have an HCV infection, give them a brief uh, counseling about alcohol. So don't abuse alcohol, and unfortunately, for many years, we found lots of baby boomers that were drinking, probably excessively, but I mean, you know, 30 grams in a male and 20 grams in a female. Um, If you have hepatitis C infection, is not okay. So if I split a bottle of wine with my wife, and one of us has hepatitis C, that's that's bad. It's going to lead to accelerated liver disease and cirrhosis. So, um, it's and and many patients were doing that, didn't know they had the hepatitis C infection, would show up with cirrhosis or liver cancer, and then the recommendation was get referred uh, for therapy. So how have we done with that? Again, not very well. So. Um, of the patients that are screened and found to have HCV antibody positivity, not everybody's HCV RNA tested. About 70% are, and of those that are tested, uh, only about 70 to 85 to 80% are referred, and half of those don't show up for their appointment. So you lose patients along the way. So. We are aware of at least 150,000 patients that have tested positive for HCV antibody and HCV RNA in different counties throughout the United States that have not been referred or have not shown up for their doctor's appointments. So, and that data has been collected uh, by um, a nonprofit that's supported by pharmaceutical industry. Obviously, they have an interest to get all these people identified and treated. At least that's the low-hanging fruit those patients can at least be sent for a referral and get treated so why aren't they treated this is hard to read but i'll the the contraindications the therapy that we used to think of active substance abuse psychiatric disorders these are no longer contraindications you're taking one pill once a day adherence is good it's eight weeks the therapy for eighty percent of patients it's very doable and there's data showing that active Substance abusers and patients e- e- in um, substance um, opioid substitution programs do fine and have just as well as VR rates or cure rates. Competing priorities. So many of these people have chaotic lifestyles, disorganized lives, et cetera. They need somebody to guide them and say, get your hepatitis C infected. P-WIDS particularly, there's a drive on to get them treated um, in order to reduce the risk of them transmitting. So PWIDs with a disorganized chaotic lifestyle who are actively using her hepatitis C infection positive are dangerous. Um, Treatment duration and adverse events, that's pretty much gone away. We don't use interferon anymore. Lack of access to treatment, that still remains, and I'll show you at the end briefly, what the Medicaid expansions look like in different states in the United States. Where, Where there's been Medicaid expansion, by and large people can get treated uh, regardless of their insurance status. And practitioner expertise has pretty much gone away. Now, DAA therapies, I'm gonna just tell you what the goals of therapy are, what the two treatments are, and then I'm gonna gloss over them. I'm not gonna really talk about therapy in detail. I could talk, you know, I go to meetings where we talk about treatments for the whole weekend. So this is, it's really beyond Uh, the purposes of this, but just to tell you that there are many therapies now available that are very effective and well tolerated. That wasn't true for many years. So the goal of therapy is to reduce all-cause mortality and liver-related health adverse consequences. We've now demonstrated that in, in patients with advanced liver disease and cirrhosis. It'll take a little longer to demonstrate it in patients that don't have cirrhosis to reduce the risk of liver cancer we've demonstrated that to reduce and to um, prove that sustained virologic response is durable we've done that who should be treated anybody with a lifespan longer than one year Period. so it's a lot simpler than the old days i've treated a little old lady who's 92 years old because she got longevity in her family, she wasn't gonna die from anything else. She didn't wanna get, and she didn't wanna die from cirrhosis. And it also when she found that it increased her risk of stroke, cardiovascular disease, lots of extrapatic things, she wanted therapy. So her biggest risk of dying is that she climbs up on a table to change light bulbs, that you gonna fall off the table. So for 20 years, we used interferon to treat hep C and that was where you the treatment got a bad rap because they had lots of side effects, difficult to take, and not effective in more than, say, a third of the patients. Starting in 2011, we had the addition of the first protease inhibitors. Then we went to interferon-free regimens. And then you can see all the drugs in development that occurred since then. We've ended up with the last two that I'm going to talk about. But essentially, we're at a point now where we can cure... 98 to 99% of patients with 8 to 12 weeks of therapy that's well-tolerated. The drugs we're using most commonly now are two. This one, which we call GP, uh, or Navrit is the brand name. <clears throat> I don't like to use brand names in a CME talk, but people otherwise don't know what you're talking about. But this is a combination regimen of a pangenotypic protease inhibitor and an NS5A inhibitor. It's a pill, you take. You have to take three pills all at the same time with food in the morning, but it's well tolerated. And this data basically, um, I'm not going to go over the details, but I'll tell you that overall SVR rates 98%. 80% of patients can take eight weeks in non-serotic patients. So it's pretty simple. And there are certain rules about if patients have genotype 3, they're a little harder to treat. The PWIDs, by the way, that are developing acute hepatitis C, are largely getting genotype 3. So that's a new epidemic of hepatitis C. Genotype 1 is the most prevalent in the United States, but the new infections are genotype 3. They're a little, little tougher to treat. We can also treat post-liver transplant patients now. We can treat patients with renal impairment on dialysis. We can treat, um, as I said, substance abusing patients, et cetera, and even patients who have failed prior regimens. This is just to show you the adverse events from a real-life experience with GP that was just presented at a large meeting. It's like 700 patients, and you can see adverse events leading to discontinuation 0.2%, so one patient out of 700. So really... We treat lots of, we've cured and treated over 1,000 patients at Scripps in uh, real life and uh, 250 in clinical trials. Most of them with soft-based regimens. Nobody stops because of adverse events, not like the old days. Um, this is Ledipasvir/Sofosbuvir, also known as Harvoni. You'll recognize that because that's the advertisements you see on TV. The overall cure rate, 96%. It's good for genotypes one, four, five, and six. And importantly, we can give it to patients with decompensated cirrhosis. So we have experience doing that. In the liver transplant centers, we've now listed lots of patients with hepatitis C and treated them while they're on the list. Their liver disease stabilizes and improves, and we take them off the transplant list. So there have been thousands of patients taken off the transplant list in the United States uh, because of these therapies. The other drug is sofospovir velpatosphere. This is uh, a pan-genotypic drug, very similar to harvoni. And then lastly, there's this regimen, which is sofospovir, also known as vocebi, which is a salvage regimen for anybody that doesn't respond. So the bottom line is we have therapies that are very effective. We also have real-life studies now from multiple different groups. These are not uh drug company groups, these are independent groups. Uh the target HCV therapy group is one of them. It's academic centers. I'm in this one and we've been collecting data for six years, looking at our real world experience and showing that it's just as good as the clinical trials. The VA has data showing that there's also real life data collected from specialty pharmacies. So the therapies in real life are effective. This is what's happened So when you look at the liver transplant waiting list, it's remarkable. In the last four years, the patients listed for decompensated cirrhosis due to hepatitis C has dropped dramatically. It's plummeting. You can see that on the red line there. The patients being listed for NASH cirrhosis is increasing. So NASH is now an epidemic in the United States and the, the, uh, the figures below show the, the prevalence of hepatitis B and that hasn't really changed now the incidence of liver cancer from hepatitis C is plateauing but has not gone away so we still see lots of liver cancers that require liver transplant but the number of new patients needing liver transplant has really disappeared now lastly the access to therapy in California we, are, we do pretty well So they've just lowered the uh, barrier to F1 fibrosis, so you can assess fibrosis by a non-invasive marker or a fiber scan. You don't have to do liver biopsy anymore. And um, with the Medicaid expansion, we can treat almost everybody uh, that has hepatitis C. There are still states like Texas, Illinois, et cetera, where they're looking at F3, so they have to have more advanced liver disease or cirrhosis so there's there are still some states where there's barriers to expansion and there's also states where they do lots of drug and alcohol testing in order to determine if you're a candidate for therapy that's left over from the interferon era where we needed to know because you couldn't make it through twelve months of interferon if you were using iv drugs or drinking uh... but there's clear data now showing that um, those are not really Apropos, and uh, you know, uh, if you can, have, some states say we well, have to abstain for at least one month. That's reasonable, but to be honest with you, social alcohol doesn't affect the outcome of therapy. So, in conclusion, the hepatitis C epidemic has changed in terms of shifting dynamics and demographics. We still underdiagnose and undertreat patients. Uh, practices for uh, at-risk patients have been available for the last six years we're not very good at doing them though there are lots of barriers that prevent screening therapies i think are no longer a problem we have pan genotypic all oral therapies that promote adherence and they're very easy to give and work and the clinical benefit has already been recognized in cirrhotic patients we still are struggling with reduced treatment in many states That have limited access due to fibrosis and drug alcohol abstinence rules. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. We'll be taking some questions after a few more slides to talk about um, how the um, information that you've just been provided. Uh, will uh, impact your implementation of criteria for the patient-centered medical home. Uh, for those of you who haven't met, I'm Mina Harkins. I've been with the PCMH program at NCQA since its beginning in 2008. Um, and so we have always had in mind that uh, chronic disease can be well managed within the patient-centered medical home. Um, and we do need to look at uh, the various workflows that you need to have in place in order to do this successfully. So we'll look at um, how you're going to bring uh, this clinical evidence uh, to individuals uh, and coordinate their uh, screening, their diagnosis, their treatment, and follow-up care. Whether you're in primary care or specialty care, there needs to be Um, a a working relationship between the two uh, to really uh, coordinate the care of these patients. So we'll talk a little bit about um, how this fits with the PCMH transformation, uh, how it fits into those practices that are doing annual reporting, and how it would fit with the uh, patient-centered specialty practices uh, that you might be working with. So let's take a look first at um, how you're going to find these patients. Um, obviously, you need to be collecting data on the patient. You need to know about their social determinants of health. What's their medical uh, and mental health history? Um, do they uh, have some history of substance abuse? Um, you know, Simply their age, obviously, we're collecting that information. Um, But there are a lot of other aspects of those patients um, and their history and their family and their environment and their past that are going to lead you to identify whether they're good candidates. So then we get to the opportunity to do outreach. How many of you are working with practices or in a practice that are actually reaching out to patients uh, to offer them screening for hepatitis C? Not very many my my um, internist uh, I just noticed the result coming back i didn't even pay attention to what was being ordered uh, every six months I go in and get checked and um, came back a result you know for my hepatitis C screening I said, oh good they're doing it, but they hadn't taken the opportunity to like tell me uh, that it was a good idea you know i'm glad he did it, but um I think we're missing an opportunity there uh, because, you know, I have friends um, similar ages. I was one of those born between 45 and 65. Um, and so, you know, it's the kind of thing that um, is, you know, people talk about their care and this and that, uh, that we can, um, you know, socially uh, with our own circle uh, share the information that they ought to have about being screened. But as a, a primary care practice you really have an opportunity to do this it's a pretty simple outreach you know their age Um, maybe getting to the uh, patients who are pewds that are a little bit different a little more sensitive about reaching out to them to be tested but if you're collecting that information um, about you know what their um, substance abuse or substance use uh, the experience has been, you might be able to identify them and, of course, then add it uh, to the things that you're going to be testing them for. Uh, what are the other things that you can uh, implement within your patient centered medical home on the primary care side? Obviously, educational resources and self management tools. You know, the discussion around are they also having. Um, uh, uh, alcohol abuse or you know, other things that might impact whether they could successfully be treated. So providing patients with um, information and where they can get information and what community resources are out there are obviously things that fit very well within the patient-centered medical home model of care. And you've got to order some lab tests. Uh, you need to be tracking them? Did they show up to get the blood drawn? Um, You know, if they've come into the office afterwards and and didn't have that done, do you have an opportunity to kind of follow up, you know, stress the importance, do some education around uh, the idea that, you know, there are very treatable paths to take. Uh, if they get a a positive response and so you know sharing with them the evidence-based guidelines uh, that are already well developed and um, the evidence is there that that can be treated so um, you know whether they uh, understand uh, in the beginning about you know what is available just kind of getting them started uh, by getting those tests done And then as those patients coming in, you know, as I said, be prepared for those that maybe, you know, you've got the results, you're going to have a discussion with them, you're going to be referring them. Or, you know, you um, just are beginning that educational cycle, you know, planning with the patients who are coming in, knowing, you know, whether they've had the screening or not. Um, helps you make good use of the uh, appointments uh, for those patients as they come into the office. The problem I think we find with a lot of those younger patients is they don't come into the office. Um, so, you know, we might need to expand around the opportunities uh, to get those patients in. If they are employed and they do have. Uh, Um, health uh, benefits Uh, they have insurance you know there's an opportunity there to you know let them um, you know to bring them into the office so if they don't you know uh, self-select to make an appointment to come in for any kind of care if they are covered under your plan and you're getting those lists of patients that are supposed to be attributed to your providers you know you do still have the opportunity to reach out to them uh, so using those evidence-based guidelines, um, the physicians have certainly the opportunity to get this information. Um, you noted that there was uh, you know, less uh, problem with the uh, lack of experience on physicians. So you know, if the physicians in the practice have the opportunity to get up to date for these regimens that are out there now, it's certainly something then that you can share with your patients that you know, you have the most current evidence-based guidelines and up-to-date decision support. Um, this might be more on the specialist side, but helping patients um, understand medications that they're going to be having. Maybe they do have some kinds of um, other um, uh, problems going on that that needs to be coordinated with their care, perhaps by the specialist. Um, so, you know, it gives the practice the opportunity to uh even for the primary care and the specialist to discuss the patient uh, perhaps they need some co-management other aspects of uh care coordination um, making sure the patient uh went to their referral i think on one of the uh, slides it showed some of the patients while they you know got tested uh confirmed that they are a candidate for treatment got a referral to the specialist but they didn't show up another opportunity for follow up uh, and outreach to better coordinate those care, that care. Also collecting information on uh, the specialist. you know, do you have a good relationship or an agreement with the specialty practice that you're referring these patients to um, for their treatment of um, the hepatitis C? And then doing some um, testing or doing some measurement around, you know what how successful are you being? are are you getting to screen those patients that should be screened? So the data that you're collecting um, for those uh, comprehensive health uh, assessments and clinical information, and then use that information to you know look at how you're doing over time. You know, are you screening the patients? Are they getting their referrals? So several areas of quality measurement that you can um, uh, find opportunities for, uh, for your care for those patients so looking um, once you've established uh, those measures using it perhaps even as a quality improvement activity to you know do even more outreach or do more follow-up uh... so that you can see how you're doing over a longitudinal period of time and if you're achieving performance you know as you're going through uh, maybe a pcmh uh... transformation Gives you the opportunity for some additional credit there for achieving improvement. Some of those same improvements and activities can be used in your annual reporting. If you've already achieved recognition, you know, how does this fit with you? Well, you know, for us, annual reporting was always supposed to reflect that you're going to continue to improve. uh, If you're doing well in some aspect of care, say you've got a great diabetes program. Um, and you do very well with those patients, well, maybe these are patients that you should start focusing on for proactive reminders or their care management or co-management and referral tracking. So always opportunities to bring in new areas for your practice to uh, uh, develop better quality uh, uh, tracking and quality measurement. And then lastly, for those who work with uh, patient-centered specialty practices or those that um, are uh, specialty practices, whether you're a liver center or uh, multi-specialty and, and taking care of these patients, you know, looking at the um, handoffs between, uh, do you have a good understanding of perhaps the testing that should be done before the patient is referred there um, do the specialists know, you know, what uh, records you've got available that you'll be sending with the patient? So coordinating so that you know we don't, you don't have to repeat things and increase costs because you understand um, which of the providers is going to take care of which aspect of care. Keeping that information, providing timely response back, and you know, just um, helping the patients. Um, make sure that they get the self-care support, any resources out into, um, that is available to them out in the community. So those are just um, the, the things that I could identify that um, help the patient-centered medical home um, provide good quality care for their patients that uh, may be um, candidates for this kind of care so i think we have a few minutes if you have some questions um, for either of us and then we'll go on to the post activity survey any questions
0: so the question is about the cost it's a good question because sofospavir got the sebaldi got the bad rap and lots of uh, press about being the hundred thousand dollar therapy and thousand dollar baby pill and blah 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 so the estimated cost now those two standard of care therapies that I showed you um, for a cure is about twenty to $25,000. For the VA it's under 10000 So a cure is under, so, and that's not cost effective, that's cost saving. So it's beyond cost effective. When I mean, you look at the cost of a cirrhotic patient with hepatitis C, it's very, very, very high for hospitalization. So very cost effective now. Cost went way down. The rest of the world can treat now for pennies, basically. So, questions can you treat in the primary care office? Yes, we've talked about this a lot. Um, So, the only issue is that you have to assess fibrosis, and I didn't go into that, but you have to make one assessment of fibrosis, and it no longer requires liver biopsy. So, you can do it by non. So, FQHCs are doing this in San Diego. Chris Raymer's group is doing this big time, and they're all over the country. I just came from a meeting in Chicago yesterday where we had a big discussion about this. So FQHCs are doing this all over the place. It's one pill once a day, and adherence is excellent. And adherence in the IV is the as these guys who treat Pwood said, so the adherence in the Pwood group is even better because they know what they know what when they. They know what adherence means and not to, and to miss a drug. But, so um, very doable. But they have, you have to have uh, primary care physicians that are interested in doing it. There was a question over there? Yes. So the question is about the rapid hep C test. So there's now a point-of-care hepatitis C RNA test that can determine a quantitative or qualitative, actually, a positive HCV RNA in an hour, and that and it doesn't require refrigeration, so that test was designed primarily for the rest of the world, because the intent in the highest uh, incidence countries is to test and treat on site. So you can do that with a point-of-care hcbrna test. You don't need a, a quantitative level. You just need a qual. You're positive, you get treated, um, and they're giving them. Uh, very uh, inexpensive oral therapies that they'll start right away they provide drug it can be done in the United States it hasn't caught to be honest 80-90% of doctors use central labs Quest and LabCorp and those, those are HCV RNA, uh, PCR assays that are done in central laboratories so the point of care testing has not really caught on as much but it could be done Well, they do, so, uh, I mean, ideally, so if you're using a pangenotypic regimen, you could argue you don't, you don't need genotype, but you do have to assess fibrosis somehow. So you have to decide who's got advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis because those patients get followed differently, they have to have endoscopy for varices, they have to be screened for liver cancer, and then they have to be monitored indefinitely after cure for the prevalence of liver cancer. So you gotta, de- that group, and they also get a different duration of some of the therapies. So, if they're getting Epclusa, for instance, everybody gets 12 weeks, but if they're getting Maverick, the ones with cirrhosis get 12 weeks, the ones without it get eight weeks. So, you have to make that differentiation somehow. That can be done with a non invasive lab test in many settings. Yes?
1: So, I had the luxury once of working with a primary care physician who also specialized in infectious disease. Which, as a nurse care manager, meant that we were doing a lot of Harvoni treatments and things like that. So I would often call for the PAs for, for those medications for the patients. But with the genotype three, what, what is the drug of choice?
0: So for genotype three, Harvoni is not approved. LDV Soft, uh, Lopressor, L- L- is not approved. Sofosferovalpatosfer, which is the newer drug, Epclusa, is approved for genotype 3, and is ad- approved for genotype 3. So those are our two go-to drugs, and which one you use just depends on different factors, whether they have cirrhosis or whether they've been treated before, or one thing or another. And often it's the payer. The payer will decide for you. And there was one other question. Yes. Yeah. So the question is, in the... So you've got two groups of patients. The older patients that, that are the baby boomers aren't getting reinfected. But the Peewits, the young people that are using IV drugs, are getting reinfected, and even after they've been cured. And some of the big centers in inner city, like uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, has lots of data on recurrent infections in uh, inner city IV drug users. Et cetera, and what the genotypes are and variability. Interestingly, it appears though the patients are developing, the, the clinical illness is delayed after infection, after each new infection, and it appears that it attenuates and goes away eventually. So it may be that they're developing some form of uh, protection. But so this has been an argument by many states that, okay, we're not going to treat you because. We're not going to spend $20,000 to cure you because you're going to go out and use IV drugs again, get infected. But John Ward, who's in charge of the viral hepatitis branch of the CDC, says that it's herd immunity that is the key. And if they can reduce the number of active IV drug users' prevalence of HCV by 20%, they'll stop transmitting. And so the the whole reason to treat them is so they don't give it to someone else. Yes. So screening for HEP B in pregnant women, of course, is state law in California and in the third trimester, but it's not for hepatitis C testing. So most women don't get hepatitis C testing unless they ask for it. They're not in the baby boom population. But because of that PWIT data and that rising incidence, it's a great concern. So but it has not been added to the routine screening. Great. Everybody's happy. Thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you. It's <laughs>